Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to what is the last episode of season three. And I am taking us back to my roots, English wine. So my question to you guys, if we take out Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, how many grape varieties can you name that are growing well, successfully or unsuccessfully in England. Well, today we are analysing the stats that have just recently been released by WineGB. And when I say we, I have a very special guest for you. I have my head winemaker, Fergus Elias, who is filled with opinions as much as he is talent. And so he's going to be giving us his thoughts on what's growing well, maybe not so well. We will be talking about one of our very special white wines, part of the winemaker's collection. It's called Sankport 2019, made up with five grape varieties, and it just won gold at the Wine GB Awards 2023. And the whole reason for the winemaker's collection is that when you realise down at Balfour Winery, it is all about clone selection. Just on Hush Heath Estate, which is our home, there are 60 acres of vines planted and 136 different combinations of clones and rootstocks. So yes... When Ferg says he's obsessed by clones, he genuinely really is. And these individual rows, which can be completely different to the next row along, will get picked separately. And everything comes into the winery, very small batch, very boutique And this allows the winemakers to be able to isolate those very, very best grapes that in specific years show something extra special. And that is where they... Fergus and Owen Elias, so father and son winemaking team, can really play around, experiment, have fun with new winemaking techniques using the very, very best grapes and something exciting gets released each year. That is what attracted me personally to Valfour Winery. So I love these episodes with Fergus. If you haven't heard our episode before, go back to episode 106 and start there and then finish here. So grab yourself a bottle of Balfour, perhaps the Nanette's Rosé 2022, just featured in the Sunday Times as one of the six English rosés worth the money. Or perhaps our Luke's Pinot Noir, because as many of you already know, Balfour does Pinot Noir right. So pour that glass and enjoy the episode. Ferg, you are in the hotspot. You are in the official question chair. I asked my Instagram audience yesterday to ask me questions they wanted you to answer about English wine. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six. Six, that's it. So it's not too bad. So question number... Six num- lunatics. <laughs> Actually five. One person asked two questions, but I'm going to give it to them because there was only six Fair questions thinking. in total. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean- so... <laughs> So, question number one. Yeah. What are, in your opinion, the most popular red grape varieties that we can, and I love this, safely grow? (laughs) (laughs) 
after uh, Pinot Noir because that one's the obvious one. So do you oh. want to elaborate? Yeah, no, you can't mention Pinot Noir because that one is a tick. <laughs> the most popular. There's, there there isn't a great deal. After Pinot Noir, there's Pinot Mernier. Uh, there's of quite course. a lot of that kicking around. That represents a big chunk of, of, of wine jubees planting. Uh, and you like Pinot Meunier, right? I love Pinot Meunier. Why? Uh, because it makes really interesting wines. I love it in still wines because you get that sort of Parma violet-y, mm. quite interesting, sort of dusty, delicious um, flavour profile. I like it in sparkling wines because you get a really interesting fruit profile. Um, I think that's what drives a sort of, you get a slightly more orange, uh, no, tangerine peel-esque mm. thing. And I think mm, okay. I think that's Mernier and that's that. Yeah, so Mernier is great. Uh, Rondo don't bother with, it's revolting. <laughs> no, don't tell the Northerners that because they plan a lot of Rondo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but it's... Okay, why? Why don't... Really de- Explain yourself because someone, okay, who's listening from America or Canada, for instance, are going to go, mm-hmm. Rondo, well, what is Rondo and why don't you like it? Okay, so Rondo is frankly a loathsome variety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was very big in England for a long time. Um, it's a super sort of dark-skinned hybrid grape variety. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a cross from the 40s, from... Uh, it's Czechoslovakian and it's weird. I think it's Severa and Laurent. I can't okay. remember though. It's not even... It's um, not even worth knowing. <laughs> yeah, it came out of Geisenheim. I'm trying to think of something nice about it. It ripens early. Um, <laughs> it's got thick skin, so that's good. So it doesn't get downy mildew. Okay, I've, I've slammed. I've, I've been hard enough on it. Why? Why do people grow it? People grow it because it ripens easily. Um, yes. You get phenomenal color extraction from it. So it's a Tintero variety. So it mm. gives you red red juice. Mm. So you press it, you've got red wine. You don't need to do any skin contact. You don't need to do anything like that. If you want to make a sparkling white base wine turn pink you add about one to one and a half percent rondo and and there you are uh it'll be a brilliant vivid slightly purple pink the wines that it that i think is the only place it really you can really use it and you need it in tiny percentages i.e for coloring up blends as a single varietal still red i think that it's a little dull i'll be honest i'm trying to be nice but i agree i i haven't found any rondo that's not clumsy that's how I feel is the best way. It's it's yep. fruity, it has some body, but it's a bit clumsy. Yeah, for me, it's not the future for English quality wine. Okay, so I think we uh, just put far too much attention on Ronto. <laughs> yeah, no, we were supposed to be talking about popular varieties. Um, so Regents, I think there's a real um, gap in the market for Regent. Um, we use it to make still wine, um, we use it to make a rosé. Because uh, again, a bit like Rondo, do you we? get very yeah, we do. Funnily enough, it's oh. a weird cross. So, so Regent is actually um, a cross of Silvana and Mulaturga. Um, How did it turn red? <laughs> I have no idea. I think I think there's a third one in there, but I don't remember the name of it. It was quite a okay. long time ago. Um, okay. Again, it's one of these sort of. I don't think it's actually Geisenhome. I think it actually came later. I think um, it, but it's, it is a German hybrid. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's from Rheinhessen. Um, and they still grow it in Rheinhessen, I think. Um, okay. But not in any particular quantity. I don't think anyone really 
grows much of it. I've, I've heard about it in Belgium. Again, it's good because it ripens early. It's good because um, it's better than Rondo because it's got a slightly more interesting acid profile. Um, it can make um, quite interesting uh, still rosés um, because you can press it and the juice is quite pink. Like you know, mm-hmm. I'll put, I put I put Regent through on a sort of champagne cycle and I'll get quite pink juice from it. Um, I won't need to do any assemblage on that. It's that's it's it's good enough, um, and that's. A lot of that's down to its skin. Again, quite thick, which gives it great resistance to fungal diseases. So downy mildew, again, prime example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's fine, um, and I think <laughs> you can you can make some you can make some nicer wines with that. And I think it's more interesting than others. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes used to make red. I don't think it makes very good red. Um, okay. But so Regent's probably the third safe variety. If we're talking unsafe, uh, Gamay. <laughs> Gamay, mm-hmm. Gamay. Mm-hmm. I think I think Gamay has a real future. You know, you just have to taste the wines coming out of Biddenden. They've got that fantastic Gamay Noir, which no one's quite sure if it's a rosé or a red, but it doesn't matter because it's really nice. They've been doing that for a long time, and what's quite nice is Gamay goes for sparkling or still. It makes really interesting sort of red fruit dominant sparkling base, which I think is quite cool. So Gamay would be my unsafe bet. I love that. And actually looking at the stats, the wine GB uh, stats that have just been released, which we are going to talk about throughout this, there are four hectares only of Gamay in the whole of the country. Yeah, that sounds about right. How four. many hectares of Rondo are there? They don't mention that. They don't go into yeah, that Yeah, that's because there's <laughs> even less of that. <laughs> oh, dear me. I think that sums up the the reds at least. And I think you've mm-hmm. talked the fact that we've got quite a bit of hybrids planted and you've touched on downy mildew. You know, we are a marginal climate. So that actually leads me into the next question where somebody asked, What is the advantage or disadvantage of being a winemaker in England? What do you think Ooh, to that? Um the advantage is oh, there are so many. It's actually it's, <laughs> I've got a ludicrously Good job. I love what I do because it's, it is every year we're breaking new ground, we're doing new things, we're trialing new varieties, we're working on different styles. You know, every year we're getting better at growing, we're finding better sites, and those sites are obviously coming online. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty exciting place to be making wine. Um, mm. And there's no real rule book, which is lovely. We have a lot of freedom in, in what we do. I get to make wine where where I come from, where I, where, you know, I'm, I'm, I was... That's lovely. Been... That's romantic and poetic. I know. And mum and yeah. dad are, you know, 40 minutes down the road, um, which is nice. They're far enough away that I don't have to see them <laughs> too often. Although I see dad almost every day anyway. Well, um, but, you know, I mean, he did he did have a helping hand in probably who yeah, and where yeah. you are. Just yeah, and everyone, (laughs) if you don't know who Fergus's dad is, go back to the episode before the part one that we recorded. I will link it into the show notes, and you'll learn all about Owen Elias and why Fergus Elias is has had a slight advantage to why he's an amazing winemaker. Slight advantage. The rest is because of here on hard work. uh, (laughs) That is true. That that's why I said (laughs) slight. Okay, so disadvantage. Uh, still quite a marginal climate. Um, climate change is, is making life easier. It would be, I'd be, it would be churlish of me to try and pretend that climate change is making my life harder because it's not. Um, average temperatures are going up. Grapes get riper. That's all true. 
Um, but it isn't all fun and games. Climate change has meant that our winters are wetter and not as cold. And the fact that they're not as cold means the vines don't go fully dormant as quickly yeah. as they should. Ideally, you'd have a really cold, hard snap straight after harvest and the vines go, cool, I've shut down now. And they don't because it stays at 12 degrees and it just rains. And the <laughs> the rain is another angle. You know, we're mid-July now. Maybe it's cloudy and has been for for the best part of a week. You know, that's not yeah. great. Uh, frost windows have grown. So, you know, you used to get to the end of April, early May, and you'd be like, cool, frost is, you know, it happens, but it's rare. As a rule, frost windows used to close in the end, at the end of April. So it was, it was great. So yeah, disadvantages of the climate. Um, it's still marginal. You know, we don't mm. consistently get years where we hit the super high numbers that I as a winemaker would, would love. But that's okay. You know, that's why I'm a winemaker. You know what? Less alcohol, we can drink more English wine, which I think is fabulous. Now, you'll like the next question, which leads on to the whole, well, you know, this is a bit of a fussy climate. You do have to work a little bit harder to make delicious juice here. So if you weren't a winemaker in Kent, in England, mm. where mm. would you be? Which Ooh. region of the world would you move to? Oh, you see, it's quite interesting because I've probably answered that three or four different times over the last five years with three or four different answers. Um, <laughs> I think I'd like to be in Tasmania working with Pinot Noir. I think okay. that's what I think that's what I'd want to be doing. So you were a cool climate winemaker. I'd still be cool mm. climate. Yeah, and I think I'd want to work with Pinot and Chardonnay. Obviously, pretty any winemaker who works in a cooler climate wants to do Burgundy, although calling that cool climate now begin, is beginning to get a bit silly. Um, <laughs> Burgundy would be amazing, but I don't think I'd want to work there for long term. I would have liked to have done two or three vintages there in my mm. sort of formative years but sadly the opportunity never arose and then I got this job and this job is definitely better than Burgundy. Yes and it sounds it's perfect because it is cool climate and as you said it's where you grew up. So now touching on the fact that you said there aren't really any rules I did get asked is there a tiering system or a grand crew system in UK anywhere? Now obviously we've already touched on that the isn't really many rules but I mean there are kind of discussions on Grand Cru systems we obviously do have PGIs and PDOs so what are your thoughts to that question? Interesting I think it's too soon to really I don't think at the moment we've identified Grand Cru sites I think there yeah. are a few that we're pretty sure will be you know you look at Chapel Downs, Kits Cozy and you go okay yeah that's 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 quite good you look at most of the Crouch Valley, you go, yeah, that's quite nice. That's quite interesting. You look at our, one of our sites, we've got a really good one over in, near Cobham. And you go, okay, yeah, that's interesting. But they don't have decades upon decades of performance. The first crop didn't come off Kits Cozy till 2011. It's only in its 12th season yeah. um, commercially. It's too soon to really be hammering, nailing down Grand Cru sites and, and, and classifications in, in my eyes. There are PDOs. What's quite interesting, and it's the one that gets forgotten, there's actually a PDO called the Darnibol PDO. What? Yeah. So this is a Bacchus-only PDO, and it comes Ooh. from a specific site um, right. at Camel Valley. It's probably their only Cornish fruit, um, and it's this Bacchus vineyard that has been looked after by Bob Lindo's wife, whose name I completely forgotten. Um, but Mrs. she's Lindo. literally, Mrs. Lindo has, has literally pruned this vineyard every year for 25 years. 
Um, and they always make a single site expression of backers from it oh every year. And that has a PDO. And that's what? what a PDO is all about. That is history. It's typicity. It's yeah, terroir. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. all of the things that a PDO should be. Unlike, of course, Sussex, which isn't well, a PDO. It's a political area. <laughs> well, interesting, because that was also another question. Somebody asked, you know, you can't ask an English winemaker questions without saying what do you think about the Sussex PDO and I already know what you think about that you've touched it's political and it's just literally the boundary of Sussex so it's not based on terroir yeah I couldn't identify a Sussex wine versus no it's too vague could this help winemaking in England in any way with other areas creating their own PDOs with slight more restrictions on because this PDO from Sussex does have restrictions on what yields can be when you press the juice there is a few bits and bobs in there that they need to take into account there are some technical things but those technical parameters I don't know them well enough to to comment too carefully on there's not that many I look specifically on them yes I do remember reading through it I appreciate what they're doing but I think that they've jumped the gun it's too soon and actually who's to say that that is the style that sussex is going to be most famous for and Mm, is mm -hmm. and is is typical of sussex and frankly i don't think i don't think there is if if someone came to me and said what is a typical sussex wine it probably would be a still wine it would probably be something like you look at the wines coming out of Nutbourne, they're sort of their Sussex Reserve, which ironically doesn't fall into the Sussex PDO because of the varieties they use. Ah. That wine has 30 years of heritage. Mm. That it doesn't get much more Sussex than Sussex Reserve in my <laughs> eyes. That's that's what that's what that's what I think of when I think of a Sussex still. And then you think of the Sussex sparklings and then you get well it's the same it's the same thing. I don't think of Night Timber, I don't actually think of Rathvinny, I don't really think of Ridgeview, maybe, yeah, they've been around for a while, but if you wanted a typical Sussex sparkling wine, again, you're looking at the, the slightly weirder varieties, the slightly funkier ones, mm. the sort of Huxel Reavers and the Reichensteiners. Reichensteiner, that makes a really nice sparkling. Okay, um, interesting. But I think that, you know, there's a broader PDO for England, which subscribes what varieties you can use and things like that, and that's quite, that's quite a good PDO at the moment. I think it works quite well. And okay. there are areas that it could be strengthened. And yeah, there's discussion over what, what that looks like at the moment. It's quite an entertaining thing to watch from the sidelines. <laughs> but if you're going more specific than just England, I really think that it needs to be for a reason. And that reason yeah. can't just be a commercial or political one. That's 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 my view. Okay, interesting. Now, I want to go back to backers when you said that there is a PDO of backers. So... Mm-hmm. You were actually talking to me about considering Bacchus's, England's white grape variety, you know, hardly any of it grows anywhere else. I think you find Chardonnay's uh, white grape variety. Well, okay, sorry. <laughs> this is the one that is unique. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, the stats say 31% mm-hmm. of all grape varieties grown in England are Chardonnay. So yes, then our number one planted grape and definitely a leading grape, but sorry. The one that yeah. is more unique to us, I should say. And you were telling me that there was just a very basic, boring formula for making backers that all winemakers <laughs> tended to do. And I found that fascinating and also quite geeky for anybody. Like, are you going to, can you share with everybody what, what that was and how you think backers is evolving now from your perspective? 
So Bacchus actually represents what about eight percent of our total plantings in the it, UK. It, Am I yes, it does. Right? It does because um, I have so, written that so down. Yeah, it's an interesting varietal. Yeah, it's obviously very aromatic. Um, it's very saleable because it tastes of something. It's very easily defined. You know, when you pour it for someone, you can talk about elderflower, you can talk about nettles, you can talk about things that they can actually taste, and it's it's easy. Um, and it used to be there was a bit of a formula for English backers. So the brute would come in, it would be crushed and destemmed, it would go into the press, they'd press it on a still wine cycle. It would then be settled or floated, whichever whichever proclivity you tend to prefer. And then it would be fermented using probably one of or a combination of three yeasts. So QA23, VL3, X5, all quite sort of aromatic Sauvignon Blanc yeasts, um, mm-hmm. fermented quite cool, bottled in March, no oak, under screw cap, banged out at, you know, well, in the early days, it was probably about four or five pounds a bottle. Nowadays, obviously, a lot of English wine <laughs> costs a lot more than that. You know, that was that was Bacchus. That was what it was. It cost, you know, even at the start of my career, which really wasn't that long ago, you know, a decade ago, I, I saw Bacchus being sold at between six and eight hundred pounds a ton. Nowadays, it's two thousand pounds a ton. That's what it costs to buy it. Um, How would that compare to buying Chardonnay and just for people to have some perspective? Uh, probably about, it depends, Chardonnay can go all the way up to I've, I've seen people pay three thousand pounds for chardonnay wow. um usually the par price for, for high quality chardonnay is somewhere between two two fifty and two five mm-hmm. so two thousand pounds is toppy for backers but you know it's in a similar price band as a result funnily enough uh, the price of a bottle of backers has gone up significantly mm-hmm. but i suppose you could argue that this rise in price has led to you know, you've got to offer value for money. And this is this is always the problem with English wine. It is expensive. It is hard to make. So if you're doing it, you have to offer your consumer and your customer value for money. And so as a result, people have been more experimental in recent years. So you're seeing different yeasts, different fermentation techniques, barrels, foudre. Yeah, uh, you're describing you. <laughs> well, minus the foudres. It's been very exciting. Can you bring it back to English, please? I've been in Germany, haven't I? but i think that's what's what's exciting now is and i'm not in a club of one you know everyone is doing playing around with backers it's got more to it now than it did maybe 20 years ago well you've been literally taking backers like i think what 2021 was like nine different yeast strains some of it wasn't even saccharomyces cerevisiae you were just nope yeah i know at one point you were using wild yeast but i think you no more wild yeast not happy with them yeah, well, I just, well, no, it's, it's not even that. I think I think with winemaking, you know, I can understand why people would do wild ferment, and I, I can see the perks of it. Um, I can, I understand, but actually, why not incorporate a bit of control and go? Okay, well, I don't know what that's going to taste like. It might not work. That's quite a big risk to take, especially if mm. you're, especially if it's not yours. You know, if, if I make a wine and go, well, I'm not sure if it's going to be very good, and turn around to my boss and say that. I'm not sure he'll be overly impressed. <laughs> um, you know, that's yeah. the bit you've got got to remember is actually there's a, there's a big element of, of risk with wild. Um, I also think it it doesn't necessarily you know just because it's wild doesn't make it better. Mm. And that's something that's often missed. It's that well I've done this to it, so therefore it's a better wine. It's like no, it's, you've done this to it, and it do, it doesn't taste as good as it could have done. And so I prefer to 
with my backers, I, I use a lot of yeasts, a lot of different strains, co-inoculations, individual ferments of different yeasts, and then blend that back together because that's for me, is how you build in texture and flavour and layers of these different wines. You know, and different effective. temperatures. You've been doing yeah. different temperatures this year yeah, as well, specifically. Like, I, like diff- yeah. I like different fermentation temperatures. And, you know, that's how you do it. That's much more interesting mm. than just sticking it in a stick it in a tank and then forgetting about it for six weeks yeah i know i'm denigrating wild fermentation a little bit there but you know you allowed your own opinion it is effectively what happens you know obviously if it doesn't work then hopefully you would act to 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 rectify this whether that's using some actual yeast or some nutrition or warming your tank up or something like that i'm sure i'm sure any good winemaker would do that but why, why not just start with a yeast that you think might be interesting and go that way? <laughs> why <laughs> not? Well, okay, you've talked about the way you like to blend and different yeast strains and temperatures. So I think that takes us on to, let's talk about one of Balfour's wines, one of your winemaker's collection wines. And this is actually your specific wine. It's the Sankport 2019, which won gold this year at Wine GB Awards. So we're very happy, aren't we? Yay! I'm delirious. <laughs> yeah, you sounded. Mm. Anyway, I. No, I'm kidding. Have, I'm kidding. I'm no. Thrilled. Yeah, of course you are. Well, I have come prepared. I poured myself a glass of. Yeah, of course. And I have the 2019. There's obviously you've only made you made 4,000 bottles of this. So thankfully, we still have some of this around. The last episode we recorded together, we were talking about the gold that we won for last year's Wine GB Awards, and that was on the Gatehouse Pinot Noir, which sadly has sold out. There is no more of that. Uh, that was the 2020. But this is 2019. Now, can you talk about that? Because last year you released three wines, two of them. The Gatehouse Pinot Noir was 2020. The Rosé, the Mary Rose Rosé was 2020. And then this one, the Port, which is a blend of white grapes, everyone. So we'll get to it. 2019. So that was really mm-hmm. something where you just were, that was about being patient, wasn't it? It was. It was. And even even when we released it, it still had more to go, you know, it, as is as is evidenced by its performance at Wine Should Be. Wine Should Be 2022, that was last year. Blimey, sorry. It it got a silver, <laughs> and and um, I was I, I was a little disappointed. I thought it was probably worth the gold, but it it got a silver, and this year, twenty twenty three, it picked up its gold that it deserves, which is which is fascinating. It's, it's rare for us to make a wine in this style. So, Saint Ports is a blend of the five white varieties of Champagne. So you've got Chardonnay, which makes up the vast majority, but you've ninety percent according to yeah. the tech sheet. <laughs> yeah, well, wouldn't always trust those. Uh, <laughs> um, you've got Pinot Blanc, uh, Petit Meslier, Arban, and Pinot Gris, mm. the five white varieties of Champagne. We fermented this. I actually used um, a really interesting strain for this. So it was, um, okay. uh, it's a mix of 200 individual strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, all in one packet. Okay. Wow, uh, Okay. So, it's like wild ferment, only it's packet yeast, so it's safe. Okay, quite interesting. So why? Just because, you know, uh, people are going, oh, okay, 200 different yeast strains in one. and Yeah, mm-hmm. where do, yeah so the, I, the, idea, the idea with it, the problem that you'll often find, so I'm going back, I'm going to have to bash wild yeast again. All right, okay. <laughs> this is the last time I'm mean about it. Um, the problem with 
that you'll often find with wild ferments and things like that is eventually one yeast strain is going to become dominant over the others. Mm -hmm. And if the winery you're working in has ever worked with any commercial yeast strains, specifically any of the sort of Champenoise ones, so something like 182007, that yeast is still in the air, it's still in your kit, it's still there. And so a lot of wild ferments, actually what happens is at the very start, you might get sort of seven or eight competing strains all trying to, to ferment. All running the race. All running yeah, the yeah, race. all running yeah. the race. But then uh-huh. there'll be one killer strain, one super... Usain Bolt. ...steroid riddled, yeah, like massive unit <laughs> that, <laughs> that will just out-compete and kill all the other yeast strains. Almost oh, kills, yeah. Yeah, so not quite yeah, like, it's, it's not quite yeah, like running. It's a bit more Hunger Gamesy. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> inevitably, if, if you were to do the analysis on a wild ferment, inevitably, if you ran a DNA sequence on the sort of yeast strain that is dominant, it'll probably turn out to be 182007 in the UK because that's the most ubiquitous yeast in the country. Interesting. Um, so wild is never truly wild, but can mm. be if you have an entirely sterile environment, you could do it then, but it's it's worth noting. So okay. work, working on that principle, by using 200 individual yeast strains, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get all of those yeast strains to start fermenting. So you get this really interesting phase right at the start where you've got all these different yeast strains competing with each other. Ultimately, one of them will be the dominant. Yeah, the winner. All races must have a winner. It's the same with yeast. <laughs> but what you're hoping for is that in that first third of fermentation, that first sort of three to five days, that you'll have enough different strains going fermenting, offering different things. So aromatic compa- compounds or amino acids or, you know, lots of different things going on giving mm-hmm. you different flavours and unlocking different parts of the wine so that when one does finally take over, that they leave behind enough of a footprint that the wine itself has, has developed something slightly more interesting. Um, okay. That's the idea. Yeah. And so yeah. more, it's all about, winemaking is all about layers and layers and layers. Um, so yeah, that's that was the idea behind the, the strain. I've not massively embraced it. I use it, I still use it, but not in vast quantities it's not one of those those yeasts that i've gone that's really interesting i'm going to bring that into the winery full time i'll always have a bit of it kicking around just to try on something new but yeah it's not something i necessarily use reach for regularly but quite interesting so it was fermented with that and then it was left in tank till the spring so fermented in stainless steel quite cool ferment then barreled down so half of it went into into barrel all Fontainebleau so we go to the forest at Balfour so you can have French and American oak and that's great but you can be more specific than that and you can go to the forest that you like so I like Fontainebleau Uh, dad likes uh, I think that the wines come out with more texture and elegance and I think that Allier, which is Dad's favourite, is a little too. Uh, you get more of the sort of coconutty um, American, yeah, American, yeah, mm-hmm. notes um, with it. I think it's a bit brasher, um, okay. which is fine. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. I can work with that, especially on Pinot Noir. I think that's actually quite interesting. But okay. for, for white Fontainebleau, for that sort of elegant, refined oak, which I think is okay. really interesting. Mm-hmm. You can go even further than that because actually. 
if you really go for it within the forest there's a huge variation and even within a tree there's quite big variation in oak so you can really go to the nth degree with barrel selection uh but i frankly don't have the time uh, or, or the resources <laughs> i just i just know that as a rule i prefer fontainebleau to allier and yep. sometimes there are barrels that are exceptions to that rule yeah yeah it then spent nine months in oak and the other half in in stainless then got recombined in stainless and left for a further nine months and then got bottled then left in the bottle for a year um before we released it and that's a long time waiting but i think that was the point wasn't it you were just you're tasting it and saying actually no not ready yet no it just it was this is a wine that seems to have it's going to have a long history it's it's slow to to get going and now it's just singing so it's it's an interesting yeah that's kind of, that's kind of the idea with it is it wasn't 99% of the wines that we make here get released within sort of 12 months it's still wines mm. I'm talking about um you know get released within 12 months of the harvest um and that's normal that's that's fairly standard across across the UK we're a young industry no one's really built up massive massive stocks there are very few people who can hold significant quantities of their still wines back I mean we we can't I, I managed to hold 4,000 bottles back out of three years you know that's 4,000 <laughs> bottles out of out of over a million um, mm-hmm. you know that's the reality it's, it's a good commercial reality because we're selling what we're making and that's that's fantastic but it's a, a truism that English wine doesn't get the time it needs well not necessarily it needs because it tastes good so you know who's right here um, mm-hmm. but it's rare that English wine gets given time and I felt with this wine I was able to hide it and manoeuvre it around the winery it was always in a weird tank so no one could ever find it um, <laughs> that's the way to do it <laughs> I was petrified that someone would spot it and be like why don't you blend this away and I'm like well it's quite nice <laughs> I'm glad they didn't so I have a question there's mm-hmm. literally 1% Arban in there there is 4% yep. again this is trusting the tech sheet so that's yeah, fairly reliable we have 200 vines in total of Petit Meslier and Arban so mm-hmm. 4% Petit Meslier apparently went in here now I asked you and Owen, to describe to me these two varieties that nobody ever tastes. We're the only people in the UK growing these great varieties. Hardly anyone in Champagne has them in their vineyards. Any new vineyards are not even allowed to plant them because they're so low yielding, but you did anyway. I last time I because <laughs> you do because you can so the last time I asked you you were like I remember I think I don't know if it was your dad or it was you and, and you went um it tastes like um strawberries I think that was your dad and then you just went yeah yeah and that was yeah. literally your response because I suppose you press it together and typically do ferments it's, together because there's so little of it. Yeah, what's really hard? So Arban, um, Arban's just bloody weird. It's sort of <laughs> like... <laughs> what's really interesting is with these wines, we've had three of them now that we've released that have really small percentages of these really strange varieties. And so you've had Lacey's, Septodile and Sankports, their impact is huge considering how small a percentage mm. they represent. Mm-hmm. Our ban in France and in Champagne can be, they can be quite sort of buttery and soft um, with a weird sort of citrus note. Um, mm-hmm. It's rare. It's rare. I've, I've tasted one Arban 
um, in my life, pure Arban. It's, it's, okay. it's incredibly hard to find. But it's sort of, you get citrus and you get a bit of vanilla and it's sort of, it's sort of a bit like that. But Putty Meslier is fascinating. Putty Meslier is, is a bit greener. Oh, okay. And so it's aromatic and that's what makes it really fascinating is it gives the gives wines this really aromatic twist and the reason no one bloody grows them is because they crop hilariously lowly especially in the uk where obviously the climate's not quite as good as champagne Mm -hmm. and obviously in champagne it costs what a million euros a hectare i mean that number's that number's five years old now so it's probably even more but you know if you bought a hectare of champagne you are looking at spending a hell of a lot of money. So plant something with some yields. <laughs> yeah, you want to get something that's actually going to give you a return on investment because our band and putty mares aren't, aren't the varieties for that. Um, whereas here in the UK, I mean, don't get me wrong, land's not cheap, cheap here, but it's a lot cheaper than that. Um, mm. So we can afford to plant weird things like putty mares because we've got the space. Because we uh, can. Actually, interesting. Yeah. So WineGB stats have said the average mm-hmm. yields in the uk are 4.8 tons per hectare so yeah how does that compare to our yields in general how does that compare uh, to petit meslier i'm really asking you now uh petit meslier and arban and then how does that compare to yields in champagne Oof, okay that's a lot so if we start with um how does petit mes and arban do so tonnes per hectare, coincidentally, is exactly two tonnes per acre, which is the number that YGB have been pumping out as the average yield in in an English vineyard for about 20 years. Um, (laughs) When people were rubbish and had no idea how to actually... No, that's not not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's (laughs) it's arcane as a a number. It's an old rule of thumb that I don't think is actually reflected and if it is it's because you've got some seriously low cropping outliers that are dragging everyone else's average down okay if you're east of brighton you should be looking at somewhere in the region do you want this in hectares or do you want this in acres well the fact that i've now just said 4.8 tons per hectare Mm -hmm. are we able to stick with hectares yeah yeah. okay so i'd say a Fair yield is probably closer to six tons per hectare. Okay. Um, potentially a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, we, as a rule, would expect somewhere in the region of six and a half to seven tons. Okay. Per hectare for champagne varieties. Um, mm-hmm. That's still hilariously low compared with champagne, where it's what twelve tons per hectare. So they okay, nearly okay. double. Okay, interesting. <laughs> wow, okay. And then Arban and Putty Meslier in the UK, I don't know the stats for champagne, but in the UK, I would get, I get about 1.8 tonnes per acre. So 1.8 times 2.4 gives me, it's like not very much, um, <laughs> 4.3. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that, super interesting. that feels that feels generous. Okay, <laughs> it's probably close to three and a half. Do you know what I would like to say is generous? Mm. This wine that I have is it? Let me just say, yeah, it's really lovely. Do you know when was the last time that you actually drank Sankport? Uh, when did I last? I actually I had a bottle probably two weeks ago. We had my sister came down from London and we shared a bottle. Well, we shared quite a lot of bottles, but that was, <laughs> that was one of the earlier ones. So that's mm. a relief because I could still remember it. Um, it is, it is, a, it's in a really good place at the moment. What I really like about this wine 
is that I think there are sometimes wines that when you open them up and you pour them in the glass over that time like for instance when you're having dinner and the wine gets far more air but also warms up you really get this different evolution and it changes and then the floral Mm. notes will become more present or certain spices will come and this is what I get with this wine which I really appreciate so you get far more of a wine drinking experience not just a nice wine but it's really interesting because I think now compared to last year as well it's got even slightly more it's gone more citrusy and savory on the palate slightly there was yep, more of a kind yeah. of you know there was more of a, a bright not sweetness in sugar level but a sweetness of fruit but it's actually really interesting now and I think that what I love the nose is actually quite rich you smell it and I'm getting this kind of like apple crumble vibe like Obviously, because nice. it's got yeah, um, it, sort of it, that you, rolled oat, oats has been one of my more you, recent tasting notes on it. That sort of rolled oat like, flavor, yeah. And even if you throw in a little bit of honey in there as well, but like mm. it's um, yeah, it, obviously it really does have that the the toastiness coming from the the oak, but at the same time the fruit really plays center stage, and it's like this fleshy peach going on on the nose, and you have this kind of you still have lots of perfume, lots of lovely white flowers, but the palate. Then it's really crunchy. It's still got this lovely, it's really limey, but then this kind of just nice layer of like a, a brioche and, and like the, the, sweet, the, the, the peach note in there. But I really like how it's kind of, it's gone more savory, but it's really uh, mouth-watering. It's really, it cuts through so fresh, yet has all those kind of different layers of different uh, fruit flavors, and slight different spices, but it's the perfume on the nose as well that that does it for me. It's lovely. Mm. Amen, brother. Mm -mm. Um, No, love that wine. It's a great wine. Well, what I want, everyone, it's only £40. Go grab it. Go to the Balfour Winery website. I'd say it's very reasonably priced. Actually, it's totally reasonably priced. (laughs) Well, no, for English standards. It is for the fact that it that it's this good that it it's uh, spent this amount of time in oak what you've done with it the the fact that now it's had even more time in bottle it's evolved it quite clearly is going to last for a good old five years more whatever because it seems to just be you know still really super super strong um it tells such an interesting story everyone go get it there's a few hundred bottles probably left so we'll see but talking about great varieties right so mm-hmm. we have the Petit Meslier and Arban, which is cool. But I was looking on, because I just want people to, the stats that people can see, it's quite interesting. There's some real, I want your thoughts on what the hell is growing in the UK. Now, of course, these may just oh, be God. individual plantings. There is Cabernet Franc being grown in North Yorkshire, in Nottinghamshire. What, yeah, and someone's planted it in Wales this year as well. I love Cabernet Franc. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah Do you think that um, we would have any chance down in the south? <sighs> Uh, I've seen it recently on a recommended list for someone, um, someone who was being really poorly advised actually on on what to plant in their vineyard. I do, do I see it? Uh, Cabernet Franc. It probably would work in the south of England. I worry that it won't work as well as people want it to. Okay. Well, let's be hopeful. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. it's the varieties box office enough either. You know. Well, so. you have doubts about that. Cabernet Sauvignon has now been planted in Herefordshire and Devon. Yeah, cool. No, I'm not going to. Yeah, I think we need to move on. They can't be planting that to grow naturally. They must be doing that with tunnels or. Um, I don't know. Never underestimate the insanity of people. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, 
Okay. I, I, I sincerely hope no one's trying to grow it um, outside of a tunnel. And okay. frankly, I don't want it if it's growing in a tunnel. I'm being really mean. I'm not a mean person. <laughs> no, you're not normally. Anyway, what can we do? It's coming out of your mouth. I can't, I can't edit that. No, <laughs> My editing can't. skills only go so far. Um, yeah. Chenin Blanc is being grown. I'm excited about that. Chenin Blanc is being grown yeah. in Kent. And then if I can even pronounce the Welsh region... Carmarthenshire, anyway. Uh, Carmarthenshire. Okay, but I like that. Uh, Kent, Chenin Blanc in Kent. Yeah, no, that might work. Could. Uh, I okay. don't know who's growing it. I'm slightly no. envious that I didn't think to grow it before them. So okay, well, that's cool. there's always next year. Okay. Merlot in, again, another Welsh region, so I'm not going to pronounce it. East Sussex and Cornwall. What are they smoking in Wales? Meh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Um not yet. Too yeah. soon. Also, too far west. Uh-huh. Um, I'd come east. Alberino. Oh, that's an interesting variety. In I wonder Kent. if anyone's had the vision to plant some in Kent. That would be really interesting. We're not allowed um, to talk about that. So, moving no, on. Jack, watch this. Jack will be most unimpressed. No, Jack's going to listen to this. Watch this space, everyone. Moving on. Riesling in Suffolk. Yeah. Is that the only place that it appears on the that- Wine GB? Well, interestingly, it does. So from what you're saying, it suggests that perhaps it should also say Kent. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Actually, I'm allowed to talk about that one. I'm allowed to talk about that one. We planted some Riesling. Woohoo! Uh, one of our best sites. It's a few years away, so it only, it only went into the ground this year. So you've got a bit of a wait on. But yeah, I think it's there's some potential there. Dad really thinks there's potential, so I'm just yeah. allowing him to go ahead. If we stop having cloudy days and get enough sunshine. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It needs that UV. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. I'm okay. not sitting on the fence. I'm, I'm obviously pro-reasoning, but I, I feel we, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. Okay, I'm glad that we can admit that we have that. Um, Gewurz Tremina in East Sussex. Gewurz, uh, okay. Yeah, no, that could be fun. Is anyone yeah. growing any Gruner Veltli now? It hasn't been mentioned in the stats, so if That's they have, it could be just one vineyard. Okay, you think that has a I'd... hope here? No, 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 but I'd like to try it. Um... <laughs> okay, all right, everyone watch your space. <laughs> There's now 17 hectares of Sauvignon Blanc in the UK, so that is growing. The Sauvignon Blanc will work. Yeah, in okay. in the right in the right regions, that that variety will will do well. I've seen it grown quite well in Essex and. I know that it works in Kent, not that we've got any in Kent. But yeah, Sauvignon Blanc will grow, will ripen. Yeah, maybe we'll, we can replace all the backers for that. That'd be nice. <laughs> Stop it. You're being mean again. So anyway, <laughs> moving on from that before you get mean, because you can't be mean about this. There is, they've also announced now that we have 943 vineyards in the UK. Isn't it is amazing. It is really That number's amazing. probably grown as well. That's probably outdated. We might even have crossed the thousand mark by now. Well, you, we probably I have mean. because, first of all, okay, so let me read this out and then you can make some comments. So 943 vineyards, 209 wineries. At the moment mm-hmm. in total, if we include Wales and apparently the 1.9 hectare planted in Scotland, that's hilarious. There is a total... That's Lorna Hall. <laughs> she, she was on my MSc course. Um, oh. 
crazy people. Love it. Uh, yeah, no, she's pretty mad. Good for Lorna. She's included in this. Um, so her 1.9 <laughs> <laughs> hectares um, totals 3,938 hectares in total. And apparently with that, because we didn't quite hit the 4,000 hectares mark yet, but 600 hectares have been planted that aren't being commercially used yet. Therefore, they're not included. And apparently yeah. 400 hectares were planted this year already which is 1.75 million vines so there's a lot going on so let's just say 4,000 hectares I mean that's basically an eighth of what is planted in champagne isn't it it's still tiny Mm. it's still there's still a long way to go um although what's the size of burgundy oh i don't know that's not huge why do you not why do you not know this i can't know i use Um, things that i use for like off the top of my head (laughs) i think you'll find that that burgundy is around twenty five thousand hectares well can you google it 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 is twenty five thousand hectares so that's quite interesting you know we're a fifth of burgundy okay all right that's good that is cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And then I suppose for context as well. So we have 170 acres, don't we, planted Balfour across uh, Kent, a little bit in Essex. Yes, I think 170, like more or less. So that works out as just under 70 hectares. So we contribute uh, at the moment yep. 70 hectares to the to the 4,000. Uh, Bless oh, us. Uh, 70 divided by 4,000. What is that number? That's a toughie. <laughs> Are you doing it? Are you working it out? I'm trying to. Um, it's about, oh, I don't know. 1.7%, something like that. How is 2%. that possible? But it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, so literally, we are, you're saying, contributing to 1%. That's shocking. But uh, we, you know, making around 500,000 bottles now. Yeah. And we'll be making with more of our plantings. We need to plant some more, presumably. We're going to get yeah. to, we're hoping, a million in five years. Might be a bit ambitious. No, I think you'd be no? surprised. No, don't think that's ambitious? Um, okay. I would be surprised if we missed it. Um, All we, right. Well, no, actually, Han, that puts us 2029. 20, it's probably more like 2032 that we'll hit the million mark, but that's still not that far away. Well, now, when you say 2032, <laughs> YNGB have predicted that the UK will be producing between 25 and 29 million bottles a year. Well, we'll be 125th or 29th of that number. So it will be about 4%. I love that. That's absolutely brilliant. Oh, uh, dearie me. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's, it's great. I love that we're doing it. I think it's really exciting and, and working with the varieties that we've got and building a brand around it. I think it's, it's a lot of fun. And you're still obsessed by your clones, aren't you? Your clone research, yep. your clone, absolutely. Yep. You're drinking, you didn't say, you're, drink, you're not drinking Samport with me, but you're drinking Chardonnay no, Clone Sanport. 76. I am. I, I actually think that I like this. So I years ago, I made a wine called Sepsidile, which was the first wine that I ever got my name on. And it's a wine I'm absurdly proud of and I loved. And it was. It was a really nice wine. I've struggled since then. It's not that tricky second album because I love I love all the wines I make. I think <laughs> objectively, I have made better wines than that wine. However, I've not loved a wine as much as that since I made it um, until <laughs> until now. I Ooh. think I've got something really special. So we've got some Chardonnay 76, which is really interesting clone, grown on chalk out near Cobham. It's a really good site. Um, I've tasted this, very, ra- I'm assuming, yeah. racy yeah. and electric were my tasting notes yeah, for that clone. We, we've chucked a bit of oak in there as well, so it's probably... Nearly a fifth of it has oak. Okay. So really 
it's fascinating. It's textured. It's got that wonderful sort of limey precision, which I mm. love in Chardonnay. And I'm really happy with it. Single clone, single vineyard, single single everything. Oh, wow. And this is going to be, because it's the preview everyone then, because I don't even know about this. Is this going to be released this year as one of the winemakers no. collection wines? <gasps> no, it's, I'm putting it in bottle in August, hopefully. And then you probably won't see it till spring, summer at the earliest next year. Right. Um, okay. There's no point rushing this sort of thing. Well, we don't need to rush this sort of thing. As you and I both know, as we conclude this episode, there are certain wines or certain things that we are not allowed to talk about. But <laughs> they will be things that we can talk about and drink and share with you lovely people very soon. There are lots of things. So it's one of those things, isn't it? Come down to the vineyard. There's always some wine that's new or a winemaker's collection wine that's just been released or one of the old winemaker's collection wine that we still have a few lying around. So, yeah. Should we advise everyone to come down to the vineyard so they can taste whatever um, the hell's going on? I guess that's probably the thing that we should do, isn't it? Okay. Um, like, there's no enthusiasm coming from your side. Oh, yeah, but I don't work in sales. I'm not a brand ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> I am not sales. I'm. That's one prong. The other prong is marketing. The other prong is education. Education, education, education. <laughs> not politics, that's for sure. <laughs> oh dear. Ferg, thank you <laughs> thank you very much for just going through a few of your comments even if they were very hateful some of them no <laughs> oh no <laughs> they weren't it's too late it's too late we can't go back now no i like pinot gris that's a nice variety yeah 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 we haven't even talked about pinot gris pinot gris i don't know what percentage of pinot gris is grown but it's actually on the list of of the main grapes it's the last Ooh. one on the list yeah okay just That's okay exciting. to conclude everyone i want to just so everyone <laughs> knows right you've got chardonnay first pinot noir then pinot meunier bacchus which we mentioned was eight percent seville blanc then solaris uh, reichensteiner <laughs> pinot noir precois Rondo uh, and then Pinot Gris. And that's when yeah. the actual list stops. So things like even Pinot Blanc didn't make it onto that list. So I guess they're even less. It's nice to see Pinot Noir Precoce broken out of Pinot Noir. Uh, I, yes. I wholeheartedly approve of that. Well, I don't really like it when you try a Pinot Noir. It says Pinot Noir in the bottle. And then mm. you find out, you read the, you're thinking, oh, that's a bit naff. Oh, it's a bit basic. Mm. It's a basic bitch. And then <laughs> you turn the bottle. I'm being horrible. <laughs> And then you turn around the bottle, the label says 100% Pinot Noir Precoise. And it's like, well, yeah, because it's not the same. It doesn't have the same quality or complexity. It as doesn't. Pinot. And it, it's actually illegally labeled when they do that. It's yeah. just, it's not enforced. Maybe, oh, I was going to say maybe they don't do it anymore because that's... No, they definitely still do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. We're still working on it. We need to get a bit tougher yeah. and tighter. Anyway, but good. There you go. It was split. It was split out. So the Pinot Noir, actual Pinot Noir, represents twenty nine percent. Yeah, and long may it continue. Any other comments? Do you have anything hateful, harmful, evil to say? Um, only that I am in awe of all English winemakers for all their hard work. <laughs> Namaste. Did that sound flippant? Amen. Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut you off now before you know before you get out of control. Thanks, Ferg. Bye. <laughs> Speak to you later. So if you have been getting value out of any of these episodes and enjoying the podcast, please, as I take about a six week 
break, take a few moments to leave a review on the podcast app you're listening to if it allows it. Of course, Apple Podcast is one of those ways that will help me and my podcast become more discoverable to other people. If you're listening on Spotify, do please leave a rating. And of course, I shall leave you with a quote. William Butler Yeats said, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And I hope when you are learning about wine and listening to these episodes, the fire inside of you is burning brighter and brighter. So I'm raising my glass of Balfour to you. May your curiosity into the realm of wine be insatiable this summer. Get in touch with me if you want to suggest things for the next season or have questions just in general. You can email me yanina at eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk or on Instagram, direct message me at eatsleep underscore wine repeat. And until September when I'm back, cheers to you.